Hey, this is Layla, and welcome to the first ever movie review of the podcast. Let's review with Layla and you. For today, I chose the movie Stargate from 1994. And why do I start my reviewing a movie from 1994, you may ask? Well, something about me you might as well learn right now, seeing as it is relevant to why I chose this movie, is that I love the ancient Egyptian culture. Always have. My love for the culture was the main reason way back when, in the late 90s, that I watched this movie. And though today I would score the movie like a six out of ten, it did inspire the television show Stargate SG-1, a show that ultimately would change my life. Why would you review as your first ever episode a movie that you only give a passing grade and not a straight 10 out of 10? Well, another thing you might as well learn about me is that I like to do things in order. So instead of starting with the television show that I do greatly love and that we will get to, for accuracy's sake, I felt like we needed to start with the movie that inspired it all. So, alright, let's do this! Let's kick it off with some facts about the movie. This is a movie presented by Mario Kasser, a studio canal Centropolis film production in association with Caracol Pictures Inc., a film by Roland Emmerich, Stargate. The running time is about two hours, depending on if you're watching the director's cut or the original. <laughs> the first already interesting topic here is the rating that the movie's gotten. I saw on IMDb them rating it as a PG, then I saw Rotten Tomatoes rated it at PG-13, and the country that I'm from, the Netherlands, has rated it at 6 and up, with the added warnings of violence and distressing themes. And FYI, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer, or Philosopher's Stone, depending on which side of the pond you're from, has gotten the rating rating 9 and up. So yeah, make it make sense. On IMDb, the movie has a quite solid rating of 7 out of 10. Today though, I would give it a 6 out of 10, but then again, I've watched a lot of movies since then, so I think my rating criteria has quite developed over the years. The sources I consulted for all the tidbits and fun facts about this movie are IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and yes, the Naughty Naughty Wikipedia. Also, the StargateFandom.com. That page has anything and everything about the Stargate universe. Love it. It is a comprehensive database dedicated to the Stargate universe. So Stargate the movie, the TV shows, the games, a must-have for any and all fans of this universe. The writers of the movie are Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, the guys that also brought us movies such as Independence Day and Independence Day Resurgence, the sequel. And Roland Emmerich is also known for movie 2012. Do not get me started on that movie. Seriously. He's also the mind behind the movie Day After Tomorrow with Jake Gyllenhaal and Dennis Quaid. That was a good movie. I like that movie. So, the synopsis of the movie is, in 1928, in Egypt, a strange device was found by an expedition. In the present days, the outcast linguist Dr. Daniel Jackson is invited by the mysterious woman to decipher an ancient hieroglyph in a military facility. Soon, he finds that the device was developed by an advanced civilization, and he opens a portal to teletransport to another planet. Dr. Jackson is invited to join a military team under the command of Colonel Jonathan Jack O'Neill that will explore the world they find once they've traveled through the gate. They find a land that shows great similarities to Earth's ancient Egypt, and here the humans living in rather primitive life worship and are slaves to a man that has taken on the mantle of Ra, the ancient Egyptian sun god. 
All right, so when I started to research a little about this movie, I discovered that apparently a high school teacher named Omar Zudi claimed in a 1995 copyright infringement lawsuit that virtually the entire film was stolen from a manuscript he began writing as a college student. Zudi even had his former Egyptology professor from Johns Hopkins University vouch for him. Zudi claims he submitted his manuscript to 20th Century Fox, who then rejected it back in 1984, five years before Emmerich and Devlin even ever met. The suit further alleges that Studio Canal eventually acquired a copy of the manuscript and some years later hired Emmerich and Devlin to make the movie Stargate, using Zudi's ideas. Zudi eventually sued Emmerich and Devlin and all the film's other producers and, well, as you noticed from the beginning, that's quite a long list, uh, amongst them Studio Canal and MGM for $140 million, hello, and in 1997 the case was settled out of court for a measly $50,000, like dang. The early pre-release screenings of the movie were disastrous. The percentage of the audience who liked the movie fell into the mid-30s, ouch, and executive producer Mario Castro realized the main problem was that the plot made zero sense. Well, yes, that makes people tend to not like a movie. His solution was to have the raw character's dialogue in the movie subtitled and made into information that presented a clear storyline. When these changes were made, the subsequent test screenings produced an overwhelming majority of positive reviews, and this carried the movie into becoming one of the surprise hits of the fall of 1994. So, well done. Also, another fun fact uh, was apparently in Mexico, where they translate movies oftentimes from English to Spanish, the title for the movie became not a literal translation of the original title. It became La Puerta del Tiempo, which translates to the Gate of Time, which then made some moviegoers mistakenly think that the faraway planet the squad went to was a very early time in Egypt on planet Earth. So they were seriously confused by the timeline. So that'll teach them. It's important to know the context of the story or the phrase you're translating when you translate. I have the same thing with their television show, One Tree Hill. Love that show. Love that podcast. And in the Netherlands, when you buy a DVD box, you buy it for the European continent. So I have the big title, One Tree Hill, on the box, but also the French title, which is La Frère Scott, which means the Scott Brothers. And yes, the early show is about the Scott Brothers, both the Lucas and Nathan and the, if you think about it, the Dan and Keith Scott. But they translated the, the TV show to the brother Scott and not to One Tree Hill, as in Tree Hill being the, the little town that they all live in, especially the ladies, the ladies that now actually are doing the podcast, the TV show greatly centered around them. So I think in summary, the lesson to be learned here is let's not get too liberal with translating titles and such without putting it in the proper context, especially when you deviate from what the creator of the movie slash show named the project. There's a reason they named it that. So when you translate and go liberal on the title, you can get a little lost in translation later on. <laughs> well, all right then, that was quite the pre-ramble. Let's get to the movie. When it first starts out, the thing I immediately loved was the font used in the intro is actually called Papyrus in Microsoft Word. Hashtag weird funny fan fact. I don't know if anyone's, well, probably considering the many YouTube clips on the Papyrus font. I mean, lordy, how many people could get upset at what font? For me, I liked it because I did associate it with the name Papyrus. And I remember like mid 90s, I was doing a project about ancient Egypt. Shocker. And I saw this one in the scroll down menu of optional fonts 
in Word. And, you know, I was there when computers came up, when internet came up. Like, I've been through that whole, god, I'm old, this ages me greatly. I remember that that made me excited. And of course, duh, I used it as the font for my project on Tutankhamun. However, I remember that people were pissed off that for the blockbuster movie Avatar by James Cameron, they used as the font for the, the movie title on all the promotional images Papyrus. One, because it's a very standard font that apparently gets used a lot when it's associated with new agey stuff. Apparently also food, indigenous vibes, and you know, that whole movie has triggered a whole lot of talk concerning indigenous representation, white savior complex, and all that awful. Maybe we'll get there someday with another review. The other day I found an SNL skit done by Ryan Gosling. Lovely. It's funny, you should watch it. You can find it on Google slash YouTube. Uh, on SNL, just Google Ryan Gosling Pyrus and then you'll find it. No problem. However, when I saw that and I was researching this particular thing, I came across another YouTube clip made by Linus Bowman, a man whose actual job it is as a creative director, who made an over 25 minute YouTube clip about Papyrus, the world's second most hated font. People, it's a font. Lordy. And again, when I watched it, because yes, of course I watched it, I do my research. For instance, the Cherokee writer and artist Roy Boney Jr. wrote in 2015, the papyrus font has become an oft-used font for anything indigenous, but harm comes from the symbolism of papyrus being tied to ideas such as nature and ancientness. It paints us as noble, mystic savages, while forcing us to continually live as relics of past. These are the same ideas used throughout history to subvert us as people in attempts to destroy our cultures and languages. It belittles our standing as vibrant 20 first century people with strong cultures. And when you put it like that, yeah, I get it. So, though I love the font way back in the day because it represented to me the connection to an ancient culture to which I still feel a great affinity, seeing how it was used throughout America, I, because that's the beauty of these kinds of things, you're not aware of it until someone makes you aware of it. Also, part of the reason why we do this podcast is to educate each other. And hey, I'm getting educated while doing this, so win-win. But yeah, the way he paints it, that using a font like that and specifically coupled with certain themes culture appropriates can be very damaging. So noted. I already made my promotional poster with the font, so oopsie-daisy. Maybe I should go back and alter that. Or we can just use it for this particular movie because they used it. And then with this exposition, we are now all the wiser. And next time I make a promotional post about the series Star Gate SG1, which they do not use the font for, if I remember correctly, we're gonna look around and search for another. Duly noted. Sometimes you just gotta reassess and that will change your behavior. Reassessment can be very good. Just ask Hannah Gatsby. This only goes to show how something that on the surface can seem so simple, a font, can have such meaning. Live and learn, I guess. It's part of this movie's review as well. Like how to amp up the geek factor, put on some glasses, a dopey hairstyle, and sneezing. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. But he has a point. In movies, with certain lighting, you set a certain stage and you set a certain vibe. Actually, you should watch that Papyrus, the world's second most hated font clip. It's quite educational. A little over the top, like did you really need 25 minutes for this whole exposition? but sure i learned something so then hey worth it but i always watch youtube on speed like 1.5 or 2 if i can still understand it at that speed also all my podcasts at least 1.5 or 2 because uh, time's precious people I liked it back in the 90s to see that they used that font. Now with the whole updated information and the indigenous underlying reasoning behind it. Yeah, I get it. At that time when I saw this, it made me happy.
The intro to the movie is the iconic, or now iconic, Stargate Issue 1 theme song, which I think they keep using throughout the entire Stargate Issue 1 series. So for a solid 11 to 12 years, not bad. The intro in the movie, and I think also the first or first two seasons of Stargate Issue 1, it's the camera that's panning across the mask the character Ra wears in the movie. Beautifully done. I mean, it's, it's beautifully engineered, so yeah, show that puppy off. The movie starts off in 8000 BC, at night in the African desert. You see a group of humans sleeping in huts when a great pyramid-shaped ship with bright lights approaches and comes down to land. While everyone runs away, there's one dude that approaches the ship with interest. There's a bright light and then we're in 1928 in Giza, where a professor Dr. Langford and his daughter Catherine are led to a dig where they have just uncovered the cover stones. We see little Catherine at a stand to look at some of the things they've presumably dug up around. Here she finds a golden necklace with an Egyptian eye carved into it. Interestingly, she just takes it with her when she hears her father calling her, which, well, I suppose her daddy financing the dig. You could technically call it hers, or, you know, so people like to think. Yeah, issue. Especially with the whole colonial history of whites coming in and taking stuff and appropriating culture. Yeah. But, hey, we're only five minutes into the movie. Let's pace ourselves. This theme prevalent throughout the entire Stargate franchise. So we will be returning to this, no doubt. We see them erecting the ring, so that the ring is standing up. Someone say, like, why would they erect the ring instead of just leaving it lying down? It could have been easily damaged by trying to pull it vertical, especially seeing that they didn't even know what it is or what it does. It is a valid question. I never even thought of it like that. I always just explained it to myself as, well, it was depicted somewhere as a standing up ring. That's why they pulled it erect. Also, I think I came to that explanation uh, because later in the movie, we see all the, the paintings and the, the drawings on the wall, and there we see the ring displayed standing up. But that could just be me filling it in later on. But when I read that question, like, why? Like, they discover a, a ring in the sand. What compels them to pull that ring erect? Which, yeah, like I said, valid question. Then we switch to the, well, present day, which of course means the mid-90s, which this time the movie was made and released. Here we see a Dr. Daniel Jackson claiming that the pyramids were not built by the pharaohs of the 4th dynasty. No, according to him, they are a lot older than claimed in archaeological society and Egyptian culture. This is not in any way being accepted by the crowd that he's lecturing to, and he's being heckled by the audience during his speech. Someone even mockingly suggests that perhaps men from Atlantis were responsible for the ancient Egyptian pyramids, which is a, as I like to call them, a hashtag fun fan fact. Within this franchise, there will be a series called Stargate Atlantis about the lost city of Atlantis. After all this heckling and people ask Daniel, well then, who do you think built the pyramids? He, bless him, answers truthfully and says he doesn't know. Which time, apparently, people have had their fill and they even say, like, did the Martians build it? And they all get up and leave. Quite endearing. When everyone starts to leave, he even steps down from the stage to get closer to the, pretty much by that point, only person left in the room and asks, is there a lunch or something that everyone is? Like, no, sweetie, they all think you're nuts. And then here comes the magic of movie making. In a short, I think, five minutes in total, they give us so much information about the two main characters of the movie, Dr. Daniel Jackson and Colonel Jack O'Neill, by just giving, with a few lines, so much background information, the character development, that we learn a lot about them. For instance, when he leaves the convention, he gets asked to sit in the car with Catherine, where she shows him a picture of a man, woman, and a child, asking him, are these your parents? He answers, they're my foster parents, which instantly creates a narrative. 
it. But however, hashtag fun fan fact, this then is never again mentioned. Not in the movie, not in the television series with Daniel Jackson. There is just one episode in the entire franchise, as far as I can remember, where his parents again are ever mentioned. And I think even then, the narrative had to be a little altered to make that episode work. But, you know, within two short sentences, we have learned a lot about Daniel Jackson. So, well, well done. Good writing. Fact: The two bags he has with him are his are the only possessions he has left. Thus, again, conveying he's an outcast on the verge of complete ruin. So then, when she asks him, "Do you want to prove your theories are right?" Yes, of course, duh. He'll take her offer and go with her because he has nothing left to lose. He will go with the mystery lady. Then, in the next scene, we are introduced to the Air Force, where we see two men, Air Force personnel, driving up to a house where a woman opens the door. We then see Kurt Russell for the first time sitting on a bed, holding a gun in his hand, which that image in and of itself, again, says a lot. Easter egg that I have never before noticed that there are Egyptian hieroglyphs on the pillow. In the entire bedroom, nothing else Egyptian is shown. As a major fan, I'm a little disappointed in myself that I never noticed that before. So thank you person that posted it on to IMDb. Great eye for detail. Kudos. Another hashtag fun fan fact is that we are shown that the boy was named Tyler O'Neill. In the television show, they renamed the boy to Charlie. Plus, we see here that the name is written with one L. And in the television series, they changed the name to two L's. Because Richard Dean Anderson, who then assumed the role of the character Colonel Jack O'Neill, said, I'm a lot more fun than the O'Neill version that Kurt Russell plays. So he wanted to create something that made the character similar but distinctly different. Which, yeah, I like because they make it a running joke in the show, which was fun. The Air Force men come to tell him that he has been reactivated. Then when they go back to the car, one guy says, this guy is a mess, how did he get that way? The man tells him that O'Neill's kid recently died by accidentally shooting himself. Which, damn mister, if he's such a mess, why the frick are you calling him back to active duty? Like, is that how you treat your personnel when they're grieving such a horrible traumatic loss, which they are clearly not in any way, shape, or form recovered from, to recall them to active duty? Mm -hmm. Okay, seems quite irresponsible behavior by the Air Force. You could say later on it becomes more clear why they would choose him of all people to lead this mission, but I'm sorry if someone is at that much of a psychological breaking point in their lives, like losing your only child to something that he would no doubt feel somewhat responsible for, seeing that it was most likely, if not definitely, his gun that the boy used. It just seems so unwise, fucked up, to in like to send him on the mission with the, you know, suicide hush hush idea behind it. Okay, maybe, but to make him lead the mission? Hmm, I just find that highly implausible, but yeah. It's fiction! <laughs> <laughs> From the moment that they drive up to the house to the moment that they leave, which is like two minutes, we see clearly a fractured marriage. We see a man with a gun in his hand, possibly contemplating suicide, and then he's being reactivated. I mean, it's not even a discussion. It's like, you're reactivated. Get going. So that's interesting. Also, the loss of a child, the loss of your only child, which losing a child in and of itself is, there are no words. There's this quote, when your parents die, you're an orphan, and when your spouse dies, you're a widow or a widower. But when your child dies, there's no word for that. Quote from TV show ER. That quote for a second rendered me speechless because it was like a light bulb moment, like, oh my god, yeah. And at the same time, yeah, because there are just no words for something like that. 
as if that's not horrible enough as it is. I think it's different if you lose your child to a sickness or an accident, as in getting run over, but to, to add insult to injury, they leveled up basically by saying the boy died because of gun violence, which is a sore subject for many. Again, it's great movie making because in two minutes you get to learn so much about this man, about where he is in his life, the unspeakable hurt that he is experiencing, that he's dealing with. I don't know if that's to give the character depth or if it was to make it more plausible for why this man would choose to go what he presumed to have been a suicide mission. It just, I don't know. I don't know what the writers were thinking. We should ask them. But then we send soldiers into battle always knowing that it would be their last and they couldn't return. Basically expected from soldiers to accept that risk. That's a lot of big themes squished into two minutes of a movie and shows the magic of movie making. You can give a multi-layered background of a character in such a short amount of time with just a few images, with just a few phrases. So that's beautifully done, I gotta say, which I, I, I don't know who to give the credit to. What I like about movies is that they immediately grip you, that characters relatable, make the characters multi-dimensional instead of one-dimensional. Great writing. Who knows? Still, in a short time, we tackle children being left without parents, thus coming into a foster care system that we all know is riddled with all sorts of dangers and not something that you wish any child to grow up into. And also the death of a child by gun violence and then added to that accidentally shooting himself most likely with his father who's a colonel in the Air Force gun and then the broken marriage as a result of that because usually when there's a tragedy in a marriage whatever kind of tragedy it either brings people together or it drives people apart. And again just in a few minutes we get so much background information on these characters and that is what I love about movies. In books this takes chapters to give this much background in depth and in a movie you can just hammer that out in a few minutes. So back to the movie. Dr. Jackson arrives at the military complex. He enters the elevator to go down and he sneezes. When asked, he replies, allergies. Because, well, yes, we have not amped up the nerd factor enough. In addition to the hairstyle, the glasses. Now, clearly we weren't nerd shaming enough, so let's add on a little sneezy. But on one hand, I kind of want to let it slide because it does work. Like, put some glasses on someone and instantly your brain associates that person with wisdom and knowledge and smarts. But well, apparently sneezes and allergies are nerd associated. But that's just an observation made of stereotyping by a fellow nerd who incidentally also has allergies. Being the dutiful nerd that he is, Dr. Jackson immediately gets to work by correcting someone else's translation. <laughs> he says disdainfully that the translators have obviously been using Budge and wonders why they keep reprinting him. Hashtag inside nerd joke, I didn't know this. But he is referring apparently to a noted Egyptologist, Sir E.A. Wallace Budge. What is that nerd shaming? I don't know. Some kind of shaming. Or shade. Shade is thrown. He corrects the apparently wrongfully translated text of Door to Heaven to the now infamous term that became a decades old much beloved franchise, Stargate. With all the nerds getting all flustered by Dr. Jackson's entrance, Colonel O'Neill comes in and he corrects Daniel Jackson's assumption that the cover stones are 5,000 years old. Apparently, they are 10,000 years old, thus already beginning to prove the theory of Daniel that the ancient Egyptian civilization started much earlier than presumed. Even though he apparently was convinced of this to the extent he claimed, to the point of ruining his career in front of his peers, he now weirdly seems surprised by this news. That kind of struck me as odd. 
thought for the first time, rewatching this movie now. Colonel O'Neill comes in with his big dick energy and informs everyone that he is taking over and all information concerning the cover stones is now classified. Catherine Langford goes after him and claims she was promised complete autonomy. And I mean, well done there, lady on the negotiations and with the Air Force to boot. Catherine Langford asks him why did they bring him in, particularly him. And it kind of strikes me as odd that apparently this is the first time they have met as well. Here I do kind of appreciate that O'Neill doesn't bullshit her and he replies truthfully. They brought him in in case she succeeds. Again, with just a few sentences, a few phrases, we get so much information about the dynamic of the Air Force, the, the Egyptologists. Well done! After all the introductions have been made, we then jump ahead two weeks later, where uh, Daniel Jackson appears to be stuck. Walking by someone reading the paper, when he goes to refill his coffee pot, he suddenly gets inspired and recognizes a symbol not as an ancient Egyptian hieroglyph, but a constellation. The Orion Star constellation, to be exact, also known as the Archer. Then everyone gets in a little tizzy, and a meeting is called with all the generals and colonels. Daniel learns that they have apparently been at this for two years, and he seems to single-handedly solved it in two weeks. Way to go, Dr. Daniel Jackson! Okay, here comes a brain fart train derailment, tangent, whatever you want to call it, mainly because a particular theme in this movie that, well, it became a theme in the movie for me, and that is smoking. Colonel O'Neill smokes in this movie, and the dude just lights up all over the place, everywhere. Ah, the 90s. <laughs> that instantly reminds you that this is a movie from the 90s. I do not miss those days. Anywho, okay, before I start off this brain fart train derailment, full disclosure, I too have on and off smoked for years, so I know. As a child whose parents both smoked my entire childhood, I remember at the time being perplexed by the addictive behaviors they as adults displayed. For instance, as soon as they'd wake up, they'd light up right there in the bed. And for instance, when we took a flight, even a barely two-hour flight, they'd be rolling their cigarette at baggage claim so that they could light up the second they got outside. Because those few extra seconds were crucial, people! Lordy, very sad. I'm from the time where people still smoked in restaurants, and I got to say I do not miss those days. I'm very happy that we've moved on from that. As a little more background to my brain fart, I myself started smoking around the age of 13, part peer pressure trying to fit in, as, you know, it is a way that people of all walks of life get together, and also, I think partly it was monkey see, monkey do. Parents smoked, most of my friends smoked, I felt like the odd one out, basically, because I didn't, but yeah, I know, both are shit reasons, but there you have it. What teens want more than anything is to fit in, or at least to not stand out too much, and I mean, it is a shared activity that connects people from all walks of life and all ages. For instance, I remember in the cold winters, seeing teachers and students alike lighting up outside, animatedly talk under the school's awning. It struck me even back then how that activity briefly seemed to blur the lines between adults and teens, between someone in a position of authority and a student. Also, how weird it is that people are freezing their butts off outside because they are in nicotine withdrawal and will brave the cold to get their fix. Hello? Problem. It's addicting when you actively put yourself in uncomfortable situations just to get your fix. Just saying. You don't have to freeze your ass off. It's a choice. Even to this day, my co-workers say, you're gonna get some fresh air. Buddy, who you kidding? Truly, you're gonna suck on a canister stick, actively eliminating the fresh air from your lungs. But sure, keep calling it, I'm gonna get some fresh air. Sorry, that's just another observation that always irks me. Just say I'm gonna go for a smoke. No frontin', no sugarcoat, I don't even know what to call it. Denial. <laughs> okay, other than denial. I know that when you don't smoke, it's just a filthy habit. As a smoker, your breath and your clothes smell. It also makes the clothes of and the hair 
of people around you smell, even if they themselves do not smoke. Like I said, a lot of my friends smoke, and it's repeatedly mentioned to me that I smell like smoke after I visited some of my friends who were smoking, and like then I didn't necessarily light up. Another thing that's always intrigued me is women will stop during a pregnancy, preferably, hopefully, for the health of their baby, but apparently they don't seem to mind exposing them either to their smoke or just seeing them display addictive behaviors once they're born. Why would you even start back up after many, many months without a single nicotine fix? Basically, your body is completely free of any nicotine. Your body isn't the one telling you to start smoking again. The only thing controlling you now is your mind. And hello, mind of matter, it's a real thing. Power of the mind, people. And FYI, children of parents that smoke are more likely to start smoking themselves. Evidently, I am proof of that, and I can attest to that. And also, like I said, I too have smoked. Hell, I smoked two cigarettes just a few weeks ago at New Year's Eve, after years of not smoking. Does that make me a hypocrite? Maybe. Or does it make me a realist? As in, I acknowledge both truths. It is, it's addicting and ridiculous that any of us actually do it, knowing that there are, like, no benefits to it whatsoever, and yet our mind is so easily tricked and convinced that we need it, so we do it. Unlike people in the 50s, we now know for sure it's not good for us, or the people around us for that matter. And still, many young people start smoking, and many people continue to smoke around non-smokers. Just a few weeks ago, my reasoning at the time was, it's New Year's Eve, it was a challenging time for me to begin with, nearly everyone around me all evening had been smoking. In that moment, those cigarettes helped ground me, and make me feel connected to the crowd, which which, yes, I know, is delusional. Whatever it was at the time, it seemed to help me ease my anxiety back into some calmer waters. And that also just goes to show how the mind can so easily be tricked by addiction. And as a therapist that has for years treated people with addiction, I know. I acknowledge that what I did was stupid, especially knowing what I know, and it should make zero sense. I mean, the same goes for doctors who smoke. If anyone knows what smoking does to the human body, it's them. And yet they keep on smoking. I mean, I haven't smoked since that night, and I don't even feel the need to now, but this just goes to show, again, as further proof to how exposure and access tend to lower one's inhibitions and make it so easy to relapse. And that was part after school special, part, I don't know, just a theme in the movie of my 90s movies. There's a lot of smoking going on. To, to build on that, streaming services are now again massively ignoring this thing that we had all agreed upon to try and stop glamorizing smoking in movies and series. This was back then enacted to limit the people that would start smoking, the young ones, the ones that have a monkey see, monkey do mentality mainly, that they would not start smoking because people that they admire or that we created to have admired would inspire them to start smoking or that it was considered cool. I mean, do we all remember the Marlboro man, like, like a man's man, smokes camel. But by allowing characters to start smoking again, and lordy do they ever, this earlier agreement seems to have become null and void. Particularly in this movie, it is also used as a way for O'Neill to connect with Skara, especially, but ugh, thankfully in later years, they find less bad habits-inspired communication tactics. Yeah. Richard Dean Anderson doesn't smoke, so the only smoking Colonel O'Neill we see is in the movie by Kurt Russell. And yeah, I kind of hope that the streaming services are going to stop doing this again, but we see, because we see it a lot, we see a lot of characters smoking again, and say what you will, but it exposes young minds, especially lately, because everyone watches streaming services these days more than ever. 
we just stream everything. But I hope that they're going to regulate this again because we should eradicate it. it. Like I said, there are no health benefits to it. Zero. Not to you, not to your surroundings. It makes you smell. And technically, people, it's a dysfunctional coping strategy. And same with other addictions. How we treated them was to, to offset it with a healthy coping mechanism. Same with drinking, gambling, eating disorders. Like, it's all behavior. And you can learn new behavior. So that's my brain for train development concerning the theme smoking. You're welcome. <laughs> So back to the movie. Loving the way they explain so easily how the gate works with a quick drawing on a whiteboard. Six points are needed in the 3D space to determine the destination, and with a seventh point, you plot a course from point of origin to said destination. For a science dum dum like me, that explanation made scientific mumbo jumbo quick and easy to comprehend. When Richard Kind, a great actor who plays in this movie Dr. Gary Myers, hashtag fun fan fact, incidentally, he's also the only actor to have appeared in both Stargate the movie and Stargate Atlantis, the TV show. That particular Stargate Atlantis episode with him is hilarious. Truly, I loved that episode. It's one of my favorites from Stargate Atlantis. I think he even comes back a few times. I'm sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> he responds that the finding of the seventh symbol cannot be correct because it isn't on the device. And this helps the viewer to realize that Daniel, after all this time, doesn't even know about the gate. They've only ever shown him the cover stones. Apparently now having made this discovery, Daniel is shown the actual device, the gate, which he unbeknownst identified as a stargate. And I mean, I can't help but wonder. Stargate, star constellation, seems obvious now, doesn't it? momentous scene is underlined by a score written by David Arnold that has become the Stargate theme song used throughout the series. Gotta love. When they start spinning the gate, which apparently it does, it's an added effect and I gotta say it works. And again, hashtag fun fan fact, in later years for the 200th episode of Stargate SG-1, they mock this development by highlighting how silly a decision it actually was to make the gate spin. In the YouTube clip that I've added in my promotional posts on the Instagram account, let's review with Layla and you, where they say, make it spin. It, it's round. Spinning is so much cooler than not spinning. It's really funny. It's an hilarious Thunderbird-inspired scene, both mocking the movie a bit and introducing the Stargate SG-1 characters for those that don't already yet know them. And special thanks to the creator, Computermon, for posting this scene. Much obliged. That entire episode was bonkers yet hilarious. <laughs> if anything, watch the, the 199 episode prior to this episode just to fully be able to enjoy that 200th episode. They jumped the shark and they never Ever come down and they jump it again and again and again in every single direction that you can think of and it's just that whole freaking episode is a delight and i mean fans out there there's also thus a thunderbird inspired scene it's really cute it's fun it's hilarious so for that particular small thunderbird inspired scene click on the youtube link in my post on instagram accompanying this channel Jackson goes downstairs and watches on the monitor all the symbols, which we now know are star constellations on the, the gate. And suddenly he does identify the seventh symbol on the gate, a pyramid with the sun directly above it. And another brain fart train development coming your way, this time about the creator of this podcast, me. 
The symbol that Daniel Jackson identifies on the gate is the exact symbol I have as one of my tattoos. As previously mentioned at the start of this episode, as a young child, I became fascinated by ancient Egyptian culture. I was lucky enough to actually go visit the country in like 99 or 2000s. All I remember it was before 9-11. I do remember even back then, tourists were encouraged to travel by convoy for safety reasons to discourage any attacks by people who were, shall we say, not exactly pleased by our presence. Imagine how that would become after 9-11. With all the upheaval and coups the years following, we never visited again, I'm sad to say. Even so, Egypt is still in my top four countries I want to visit or revisit in this case before I shove off this mortal coil. I became greatly enamored with both the people and the culture, both the ancient culture and the current culture. People tended to get all excited when they learned my name was Leila. It's an Arabic name, they would say. Our guide even converted my name into Arabic, hieroglyphs, though I'm unsure how truly accurate that last one is, seeing as the hieroglyphs don't translate from letters to symbols, but it was a kind gesture. It also doesn't hurt. I apparently look quite Middle Eastern, though according to my DNA analysis, I'm as Northwestern European as they come. Did not see that coming, actually. Especially seeing that I feel little to no affinity to Northwestern cultures and am drawn way more to Samoan, Mediterranean, and Middle Eastern cultures. But then again, how accurate are those swabby tests that you send via the mail to some obscure lab somewhere on the other side of the planet? Anywho, in Egypt, we met the kindest, nicest people, and if I can, I definitely want to retire there. With a little house, like by the Nile, serenity, quiet, mm, love it. Who knows? Maybe someday. First, I gotta work 40 more years before I could even start to think about retirement, according to our current government setup. Or, I suddenly get crazy ass rich or something, but even then, I still I want to work. Idle hands and all. And specifically, in my case, idle minds. I need to do something meaningful with my life, otherwise I go nuts. That's been proven quite extensively. Truly. Anywho, back to the symbol and my tattoos. I have two, currently, because I can't decide on the other ones I want. I want many, many more. Just, you know, what? No, stick to the story. Okay. Stargate SG-1 was the first show, the first real thing I loved. It wasn't something my family loved, it wasn't something I grew up with or adopted from anyone to love. No. To this day, <laughs> no one in my family shares my love for Egypt or the show. This was, as I felt it, the first true Leila thing. Something that was completely me. At age 13, I was aware exactly of which tattoos I wanted and where I wanted them. However, I wasn't allowed any body modifications until I was 18, so I had to wait. Seeing as I didn't tell anyone, and I kind of just revealed it on my birthday like, ta-da, look what I did! <laughs> For my 19th birthday, I got these two tattoos after a year filled with some serious life-changing traumatic events that rocked me to my core. Hashtag fun fact, a day after getting my tattoos, someone already asked me if I regretted them. Dude, no. How falsely do you think I am? Hello, you don't know me. I mean, I think things through. And since now it's been like 17 years or something since I got them, and yep, no regrets. Zero. If I have any, it's that I haven't been able to decide exactly what and how I want my next ones to be. I'm too much of a control freak to just go into a tattoo parlor and just say have at it and i or i just haven't found the right person i don't know i haven't exactly looked all that hard for a tattoo artist but to get a tattooed artist that i trust to give me what i want because i've always said the only tattoos that will touch my body will have to be true to the ancient egyptian style and roots with the colors and all of that and has to also be me it's not too modern not too ancient egyptian it's still on my to-do list or bucket list whatever you want to call it my bucket list is more like hopes and dreams and my to-do list is I will be doing that at some point. Right now it's just it's a lot of money and because I can't decide on the exact design like I want them to be a lot more detailed, comprehensive and with a lot more shading and coloring than these two I got now. So it has to be a good tattoo artist because I think looking back I got these done by an apprentice. Most to show how well prepared I was. <laughs> 
So if anyone knows a good artist in the Netherlands or Belgium or wherever that has experience with ancient Egyptian symbolism and a beautiful coloring and shading style that makes tattoos vibrant and come alive, by all means, call me. Or, you know, let me know in the on my Instagram account. Let's review with Layla and you. In conclusion, sorry, I tend to ramble when no one stops me. <laughs> the tattoos I got are of this particular earth symbol. And another one, which for me, together symbolize my own personal yin-yang. So it keeps me balanced. And boy, did I need me some balance back then. The earth symbol is depicted as a, well, if you will, three pyramids with the sun directly above it, representing earth and the sun. Hashtag fun nerd fact. My other tattoo is of the left eye of Horus. Incidentally, also seen in the movie, but only referred to as the Eye of Ra. Nope. The left eye is the Wedjat, the healed eye of Horus, which stands for protection, healing, and the moon. And the right eye, the Ujat, is usually depicted as the Eye of Ra and represents power, fury, and violence. I think you can imagine why I didn't get this set. No need for added fury and violence to my life. Thank you very much. In Egyptian mythology, Ra was the god of the sun and later combined with the god Amun to become Amun-Ra. Because of this, the Eye of Ra is usually associated with the sun. But to me, this earth symbol also fulfilled the sun to offset my moon. It also added the meaning for me for that the earth symbol is made up of geometrical shapes, male energy, and the eye is more feminine with its flowing lines. Thus, my two tattoos together represent balance and keeping me balanced. Okay, enough rambling about me, let's get back to the movie. Starting off with a hashtag nerd fact. The Stargate is supposedly a system designed to open wormholes. A wormhole is a hypothetical way of space travel called an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Some of you may recognize that term from the Marvel Universe, where they called it a Bifrost, opened by Heimdall and his sword, and later also being able to be created by Thor's hammer. Versions of all the nerdiness. Love it. Einstein-Rosen bridge was named after the scientists Nathan Rosen and Albert Einstein. According to them, the wormhole should be capable of uniting two distant points in the universe altering space-time laws to cross from point A to point B in a brief period of time. The name wormhole compares the universe to an apple with a worm boring through it to reach a point on the other side instead of crawling the long way around on the outside. The same concept was used in the movie Contact from 1997. Love that movie. Might review that one as well. And Star Trek Deep Space Nine 1993. Gotta admit, I've never seen that movie. Sorry. Anywho, Daniel Jackson having now identified the seventh symbol on the gate that they need to plot a course, they enter it into the Stargate and lo and behold, the Stargate is now able to create a wormhole. Maybe a little fun fan fact on Stargate's usage of the gate. The ring has 39 glyphs on the Stargate and 9 chevrons that can lock, as they're going to be called from now on, or at least in the series. I don't think they call them that in the movie. They start calling them that in the TV show. In the television series Stargate SG-1, which first aired in 1997, and Stargate Atlantis, which first aired in 2004, and in Stargate Universe, that first aired in 2009, it is explained that the glyphs on the Stargate depend on the galaxy in which the Stargate belongs. Because we only use seven chevrons to locking coordinates the gate has nine as they later explain it is you only need seven points to plot a course within a galaxy but to plot a course from galaxy to another galaxy you're gonna need eight as we later discover Additional nerd fun fan fact shared on IMDb. Gotta love us nerds. Using mathematical combinatoric, it implies that a single Stargate can locate apparently 77,519,922,480 places oy, throughout the galaxy. Using an eighth glyph combination for extra galactic travel, the Stargate can locate, and that is such a big ass number I can't even pronounce it. I'm sorry. I try. <laughs> I think it, it like 2,480 billion, 6,637. 
$519,360 plays. Does anything go above a billion? Probably, but like, no, I'm not a mathematical. I'm gonna leave that to the geniuses. But that was uh, funny for me to realize that 77 billion places, that's a lot. And that's just in one galaxy. Just again, goes to show how much I love this universe. It is fiction, but the way that they explain it to us, it's plausible? That's usually the fiction that I love, where it's plausible. That's what I also loved about Charmed. It was plausible that there were still secret witches. And what I loved about How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, hey, dragons are real, this was real, but they're still waiting in the wind for us to get our shit together. And maybe then they'll return. That's what I loved about it. It also made me very sad because we have not gotten our shit together. <laughs> not even a little. If anything, we're just steamrolling ahead right onto our extinction. And hey, the planet will survive because the planet survived long before we arrived and or were created, whatever, and will survive way after we're gone. But yeah, just that's plausible deniability. I love that. Because it somehow gives hope. I don't know. Hope that we maybe not know everything that is happening and that maybe good things are being done, good people still exist. I mean, I would love to have known that there was a Stargate command for reals, even and if anything, especially <laughs> under a Trump. Back to the movie. With the wormhole now established, they order to send in the probe. And I'm sorry, <laughs> after years of watching alien-related movies, TV shows with all the probing funnies, that now makes me giggle. <laughs> alien probing, woo! The imagery. <clears throat> sorry, that was a little side note. Once Stargate Command sends in the probe, they have a system that indicates the probe's molecular deconstruction and a star map to show its location in the galaxy, which they claim to be on the other side of the known universe. Yeah, no. A star map indicating the position on the other side of the known universe simply cannot exist. If only because <laughs> all existing star maps encompass only a small portion of our galaxy, which is just a teeny tiny speck compared to the size of the observable universe. Somehow they managed to squeeze star in the universe onto a glass board a couple of feet in diameter. That's where he kind of lost me, Bubba. Anywho, after Daniel claims he's able to decipher the symbols on the other side needed to get them back home, Colonel O'Neill is seen staring, and again smoking, at the Anubis fossil thingy that they dug up near where they found the gate back in 1928. Clearly, they expect something ominous. Dun, dun, dun. Just before stepping through the gate, Catherine Langford gives Daniel the supposed Eye of Ra as a good luck charm. Just before they take off, O'Neill says that if anyone has anything left to say, now is the time. Followed with absolute silence, but for another loud sneeze and Daniel blowing his nose. Because yes, we are going on a very serious military mission and we're bringing along a nerd who does not belong. Hmm, I did not like that. I get it, but no. They go through the gate at exactly the 30 minute mark of the movie. It's a solid 30 minutes of movie making. O'Neill stands there looking all badass motherfucker before stepping through the gate holding his rifle at the ready. Daniel just stands there at the event horizon as they're gonna call it for a bit just fingering the water-like puddle and then as the only team member remaining on Earth's side he too steps through the gate. They split into three teams to explore their surroundings into the unknown. They leave the dark room holding the stargate and go exploring. They see a raised circle on the ceiling with pizza sliced parts coming together at the center. Coming back to what that is later. Before stepping outside, they take a moment to show O'Neill putting on his sunglasses because he is the cool guy of the bun. Mm -hmm. 
They walk outside all armed to the teeth, but Jackson, who's just strolling along, seems as if they're walking right out of an Egyptian temple into a desert. After they've walked down the gangway, they turn around and yes, that is indeed quite the sight to behold. Oof, the temple face is now dwarfed by a giant ass pyramid directly behind it. There are also three moons visible in the bright blue sky to emphasize the fact we are not in Kansas anymore, people. Or Earth. <laughs> and Daniel is mumbling, I knew it. Yes, you did. The guys use their equipment to scan their immediate surroundings, seems like a smart move, and seem to give all clear for a quarter mile in all directions. Colonel O'Neill directs Jackson to start realigning the Stargate to re-establish contact with Earth. All of a sudden, Daniel Jackson now admits he can't. Apart from his desire to go explore, which, hey, I totally get. But dude, this is why you came. After you figured out how to work the gate, then you can go sightseeing. He says he can figure out the symbols, but needs to know the order of alignment for the coordinates. Apparently, he was under the assumption, and we all know what happens when you assume, that there be coverstones near the gate similar to the ones they found on Earth. Didn't you think that that is a minor, or, you know, major assumption you should have shared with the class before coming through and possibly stranding everyone forever on the possibly other end of the known galaxy? Dude, no. Understandably, this news is not taken well by the men. Again, good movie making because reasonable assumption that viewers might have gotten is addressed. But the men talking and some appear to be under the mistaken assumption that they just have to wait until Earth dials back in again and mention that they need to get the gate working from this end, otherwise they're screwed. And what struck me here was that, dude, for such a crucial mission into the unknown, y'all are acting under a lot of assumption. This allows them to, for the first time, mention that wormhole travel is one-directional. Which is, you know, rather an interesting and important piece of information. Especially for the men going, how is it that they are under a mistaken assumption? That's just, again, wrong. Not nice. To send your people onto a mission, into the unknown, under very under mistaken assumptions that define how much risk they're taking. It just really struck me as odd. But hey, this way it kind of does allow for the physics part to survive, as in that wormhole travel is one-directional, and to also even make it possible that people would go on such a mission but yeah if this were reality you would be seriously wondering why people weren't better prepared and briefed on all the you know important tidbits of their travels for some reason they're setting a base camp in the middle of the desert i mean dude you got a temple and a possibly giant ass pyramid right behind you for shelter from all the elements why on earth oh right not on earth would you reject those cushy surroundings especially not being all on open like that that's just an odd choice jackson walks up with his trunk acting all happy as a clam as if he's just gone camping i mean he seems pleased that everyone even gets their own tent he can be such a lovable nerd then we move back inside the temple where o'neill is by the gate unpacking or assembling something. That something turns out to be a bomb. Yeah, leave it to the military types to always want to blow any unknown shit up. Jackson sits down to assert his vest pockets and mentions he has everything there but sunblock. Again, lovable nerd. This mellow attitude understandably pisses off one of the men named Freddy. He throws Jackson's suitcase filled with books at his head which then pops open. Next, we see Jackson going around picking up his books O'Neill quickly wraps the bomb back up when Kowalski walks in, informing the colonel that base camp is up. This also, again, was just a few seconds that this is something that he's hiding from his own men. That they are here under different orders and different instructions. 
Next, we see Jackson munching on a candy bar sitting in the surrounded by his books. He suddenly sees track marks in the sand and starts to follow them. He comes upon a creature. It's like a buffalo-sized animal munching on some leaves in the middle of a desert. Okay. Daniel approaches the creature. After some initial skittish behavior, the animal accepts his attention, especially when he smells the food in Jackson's hand. O'Neill is heard calling out that Jackson shouldn't be feeding that thing. Jackson yells back, it has a harness, indicating its domesticity. Understandably, all this yelling is upsetting the creature and and it bolts. With Jackson stuck in the rain, so now he's being dragged behind it. Or James Spader. Oh. The men run after him, although after a bit they seem to run out of steam and just continue to watch Daniel and the creature disappear into the distance. Mm. Next, we see Jackson passed out, getting licked awake by the creature. Oh, it's kind of like Aragon in Lord of the Rings. That's just an image. And that was well over a decade later, but that just struck me as, oh, that's really a movie thing that they do to enter in a new scene. Jackson's waking up, and the men come running up. We hear a trumpet in the background. The men climb up to the ridge and you can hear the men cocking their guns. Daniel goes to stand with them and they behold quite the sight. Thousands of people dressed in robes and rags are working alongside the creatures, slaving away, digging, mining for something. The men on the ridge are noticed and the people down by the giant tent start to call something out to each other, presumably to stop working and behold the now approaching men, seeing that they speak a language that is not subtitled and I don't speak. They walk up and O'Neill says to Daniel Jackson, alright Jackson, you're on. When Jackson acts all surprised, O'Neill responds with, hey, you're the linguist. Jackson walks up. Before he's figured out what to say, the man notices the gold necklace that Jackson is wearing. The man yells something and everyone immediately drops to the floor, bowing down, touching their heads to the ground. O'Neill steps forward and approaches the boy he witnessed from afar earlier, yelling out what seemed to be orders to stop working. The meat cube. Sorry, just, yeah. He offers the boy his hand, which the boy just marvels at. O'Neill grabs hold of his hand and slowly shakes it. The boy looks incredulous for a moment before he freaks out, screams, and runs away, yelling phrases all the while. Shortly thereafter, we see him animately talking to someone in a riding chair atop one of the creatures. The man, wearing robes that look significantly of better quality than the rest, indicating a certain level of stature, descends the creature wearing a hat and holding a staff. He approaches the newcomer, seemingly introduces himself, although Jackson doesn't seem to recognize the language. The man offers them his staff, and women approach, offering the men something to drink. Jackson then offers the man in the robes his own candy bar. He seems to convey that it's something tasty, and though apprehensive, the man tastes it. He seems pleased and starts to repeat bunny way. Which never fails to make me laugh, like bunny way. <laughs> That's just every time. The man invites them to go with them. To O'Neill, Jackson explains this is their best chance of figuring out their way home. While all of this is going down, a team member scans the mineral the people seem to be mining, which turns out to be made of the same material that the Stargate is made of. I don't know if they actually call it Naquita in the movie, but in the TV show they call this mineral Naquita. This argument seems to help convince O'Neill that this could indeed be a worthy endeavor and he radios it into base camp. Next, we see a large conga linus convoy through the desert as the people are returning to their village, taking the team with them. While walking, Jackson starts to sneeze again, wiping his nose with his handkerchief before stuffing it back into his pocket. Behind him, one of the villagers steals his handkerchief, which the boy whose hand O'Neill shook quickly gives it back to Jackson, seemingly saying, stop it. Hashtag fun fan fact, the city, which appears to be very large, was actually a miniature placed on a dune, which each course of buildings being only about four feet tall. Gotta love movie making magic. Walking back to the village, we now see the woman that offered Daniel Jackson his drink earlier is watching the interaction between Jackson and the boys with his handkerchief unfold, with, with a smile on her face. She seems enamored with Jackson. As they enter the village, we see a larger version of Daniel Jackson's necklace hanging in the town square. The man in the robes, the village chief it seems, walks up to it, spreading his arms in reverence, and as he turns around towards the newcomers, all the villagers again bow down. This makes Jackson seemingly understand that the people are under the assumption that they were sent by Ra. Suddenly a horn blows. We see 
already trying to radio the colonel while in the middle of a sandstorm calling for an evacuation to base camp. Told you you should have gone back into the temple. But the men can't make out what Freddy is saying, which worries the colonel. In the village, the man in the robes, the chief, orders the gates to be shut. O'Neill and his men panic, fearing they're getting locked in and rush the gate, fighting the men closing it and even discharging their weapons into the ground. The men in the robes runs up with Jackson trying to show them why they closed the gate. O'Neill follows when the boy signals to him to follow him up the turret to the top of the enclosure. The boy shows O'Neill a sandstorm is coming. When Kowalski yells out, What do you see, Colonel? Once he learns it's only a sandstorm, he huffs and releases the man he had in a chokehold. Daniel mumbles, That would have been an excellent reason to shoot everyone, aptly highlighting the stupidity of shoot first, asking questions never approach that the men adopt at the first sight of rising tension. Kowalski tries to apologize to the village leader with through gestures, which is quite endearingly funny to watch, actually. But I like it that he's taking accountability of actions and that they were seriously overdrawn. Next, we see night has fallen and the villagers are eating while there's laughter, music, and dancing. Jackson seems to be the only one willing to participate in the meal. He eats from an armadillo lizard-type dish and tells the men it tastes like chicken. Jackson tries to convey this to the man, the chief, the village leader, by imitating a chicken. Like, everyone looks a little uncomfortable and laughs, but they don't seem to recognize what Jackson's trying to emulate. O'Neill points out that the Eye of Ra is Egyptian, and seeing that the people know one symbol, that means they may know another symbol. Jackson approaches the village chief and points to his necklace. Instantly, the man starts to bow again. Jackson tries to attract his attention to the floor where he tries to draw an eye in the sand. The village leader immediately wipes it away with his foot, and from his response, Jackson learns that writing must be forbidden to them. And here we enter another very important theme in this movie, illiteracy. The people are seemingly not allowed to read or write, thus trying to keep them subjugated and ill-educated, so they are less likely to rebel. There's this quote by Sir Thomas More, For if you suffer your people to be ill-educated, and their manners to be corrupted from their infancy, and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded from this that they first make thieves, and then punish them? This quote rings really true for me, especially in the way our current society is taking shape, where ill-educated people are just wreaking havoc on our society and the planet. Especially during the pandemic, the difference between truly educated people and ill-educated people was, even for me, who considers herself a realist and not necessarily a pessimist or even an optimist, I was shocked. On one hand, I blame them for their stupid behavior and lack of insight, which can also to some extent be considered a limited sense of empathy or in my view even humanity. Ableism! But on the other hand, I also see that if they were never shown, how could they know? That's a little brain fart trained development about illiteracy and keeping people woefully, willfully, intentionally ill-educated and illiterate. A tool to subjugate people and assert your dominance. Back to the movie, the village chief next directs women in colorful shawls to crowd Jackson and lead him away. A young woman, dressed in a fine gown, enters the tent. She lifts her veil and it is revealed to be the girl from earlier. She starts to undress. Jackson jumps up and pulls her dress back into place. He says it's okay, she doesn't need to do that, and tries to direct her out of the tent. When they open the flap, the village chief is there with some people and seems to be shocked, and seemingly asks the woman why he wouldn't want her, and falls to his knees, seemingly begging Jackson forgiveness for sending him a woman not to his satisfaction. The woman seems to indicate Jackson doesn't like her. Jackson, now realizing by his refusal of her he's insulting the village chief and putting the woman in a compromised position, changes tack and tries to show his thanks to the village leader for his present by grabbing her by the shoulder, hugging her close, and retreating back into the tent. Another brain fart trail enrollment coming your way. The theme of men giving away women as gifts to perceived men of stature and power as if the woman is merely property, an item to be traded. The chief of the village offers this young woman to the man, in this case Jackson, whom he presumably deems the leader of the team 
theme as a way of cementing relations? That is patriarchy at work there, people. Distressing theme for any girl watching, if you ask me. I know, growing up with these kinds of themes where women are perpetuated as items to be owned, traded, used for strengthening relationships, solidifying bonds, just that is the world that we as girls grow up in. And that does something to your mind. Same with the whole early Disney movies with men having to sweep them off their feet and saving them. And I'm very thankful that now the animated movies are a lot more about empowered women and women fighting their own battles and saving themselves or and each other instead of having to, you know, get rescued by our Prince Charming. Yes, that especially from the viewpoint perspective. And in this case, I believe overall there are more women on the planet than men. Yet we as women are placed in the majority of societies across the planet in a submissive inferior role. So yes, I still count that as a minority. Back inside the tent, we learn that her name is Shaori. Again, Daniel tries to communicate via drawing in the sand. He draws them exiting the pyramid to show her where they came from, but she quickly looks away. Seeing that his actions made her uncomfortable, he turns away. While his back is turned, she alters drawing to a pyramid with the sun above it, the earth symbol as it is designed on the stargate. Jackson asks her if she's seen this symbol somewhere, and after she indicates that she has, he invites her to take him there. Sort of like that Aladdin scene, like, do you trust me on the balcony? That was kind of cute. Back in the temple, structure. Ferretti enlightens the men that no, they can't just randomly start dialing the gate because they have no idea where that will land them, quite possibly the vacuum of space, which again is a way for the writers to answer a question that would have been asked by a viewer. Which just goes to show that they really thought things through and that they wanted to make it as plausible and as logical as they could. Suddenly, the temple starts to shake and we see great bolts of lightning and a pyramid-sized ship land atop the giant pyramid outside. Once it has landed atop, the men inside the temple take up defensive position. We see Ferretti attacked by a man wearing a clawed glove adorned with gems and wearing a giant Anubis-shaped mask that tilts its head and has glowing blue eyes. Meanwhile, back in the village, we see O'Neill smoking a cigarette, playing with his lighter, and the boy from earlier entering his room. O'Neill shows the boy how to light a flame with the lighter, and the boy wants to try a cigarette as well. O'Neill shows him how to flick the cigarette, which the boy is quick to imitate. He then inhales deeply, and this behavior also quickly gets imitated by the boy. Unlike O'Neill, he clearly isn't used to smoking and coughing heavily as he stamps out the cigarette. Next, he tries to take hold of the gun, and O'Neill yells, yells loudly, NO! His reaction, or overreaction, if you will, has to do, of course, with O'Neill's history, where his own son accidentally shot and killed himself because he was unfamiliar with the usage of a gun. The boy runs away scared. O'Neill tries to yell after him saying that the gun is dangerous and that that is why he yelled but of course the boy doesn't understand. Next, we see Daniel and Shaori moving rocks and climbing into a tunnel where there is writing on the walls. We see the pyramid and the sun symbol again, and Daniel starts to read the hieroglyphs on the wall. Mumbling to himself, Shaori recognizes a word. Jackson and Shaori discover how they can communicate via language. Back inside the pyramid, we see Ferretti getting dragged past a large falcon-shaped statue into a room where a sarcophagus is opening up and a hand appears from the occupant inside. Once the guard sees that Ferretti is awake, he again knocks him out, thus ending the scene also for us. Switch to the boy showing off the lighter to the rest of his friends in the village. O'Neill then approaches the boys and asks where Jackson is. Lacking the language skills, the way he gets his question across to the boys is via imitation. He gestures towards wearing a vest, long hair, the glasses, all of this doesn't work. No, also the word truly doesn't work. Then the sneezing thing, of course, is what makes the boy understand. And that, okay, granted, that whole scene cracks me up every time. He himself responds with the chicken imitation that Jackson utilized during dinner to acknowledge that he understands whom the colonel is asking about. I mean, I love the fact that even though you don't speak the same language, you can still communicate in a way that you both can understand what the other is saying. And it's it's a funny scene. 
The boy then takes O'Neill and his men to the tunnel where we find Shaori and Jackson talking. Jackson explains that the language is a derivative of ancient Egyptian and he just had to learn how to pronounce it, seeing that it isn't a living, spoken language for over a thousand years. Which is also good to remember that the way we now interpret the ancient Egyptian language, the hieroglyphs, that is all conjecture because it's a dead language. We don't know. With the imagery on the wall, Jackson then shows how a traveler from a dying species in danger of extinction traveled the stars looking for a way to survive. He came to a world rich with life, where he encountered a primitive race, humans. We see a flashback to the beginning of the movie where we saw the boy back in 8000 BC approach the same kind of ship we just saw landing atop the pyramid. Daniel goes on, telling that the alien traveler, with his knowledge, found a way to maintain our race indefinitely and could grant himself eternal life by occupying and possessing the human boy. He appointed himself our ruler. He used the Stargate to bring thousands of humans from Earth to this planet to mine the mineral he uses for his technology to sustain his eternal life. We now see that the hand for Already saw coming out of the sarcophagus belongs to the boy in the African desert back in 8000 BC, now all dressed up and decked out in adorned items. While they're talking, Kowalski discovers a cartouche holding the gate coordinates, which are unfortunately the final symbol is worn off by the sand. The men leave Shaori and return to the pyramid where they see a giant pyramid-sized ship has since landed. Arming everyone, this time including Jackson, they run back to the temple. We see that the boy has followed them unbeknownst to the men. Inside the temple, they discover guns were discharged. Outside the temple, we see the boys from the village running to the side of the temple and appear in through one of the openings in the wall. There, he sees the men are knocked out by the guards. O'Neill and Jackson retreat back to the stargate where O'Neill goes to activate the bomb, but in opening the container, we see that the bomb is gone. Next, we see from the circular opening in the ceiling we saw earlier, a column of rings descend and a guard with an Anubis head appears at the center flanked by other guards. O'Neill learns that the portal the man used is controlled by his jeweled glove when the guards direct O'Neill and Jackson into those rings, which allows them to appear in a throne room, presumably inside the big-ass pyramid ship. By slamming into their knees, the men are knocked down. A man wearing a giant pharaonic mask descends the stairs surrounded by children adorned in the ancient Egyptian dress style. Can anyone say creepy? For the first time, the alien language is translated when the man with the distorted voice in the giant pharaonic mask speaks. He says, you have come to destroy me, as men walk in the bomb and place it by the foot of the throne. Jackson turns to O'Neill and connects the dots by saying, that is what you were looking for. He asks him what he even came here to do. Valid question. Next, the man in the pharaonic mask instructs his guards to lower their masks. By pressing a button on the side, we see that their masks can collapse, disappear, and human faces appear. And what a face at that. Hashtag fun fan fact. Although he played a few small parts parts before, this film has the first substantial supporting role for Jamon Hunso, credited in this movie only as Jamon. I didn't recognize him. Like, only after I read this and I went back and I looked at it, I'm like, oh, it is first time I was ever introduced to the greatness that is Jumon Hunsu was in ER, where he played um, such a powerful character with such a powerful backstory of human trafficking, of prisoner of war, of torture. I mean, yeah, ER, I love that show. There's no show like it ever. All the hospital shows after hail in comparison. Like, no. It hurts me to my core that Grey's Anatomy has gotten more seasons than ER. That just, no. It also hurts me that it got more seasons than Supernatural. But that's just, like, mm. the only one that's still in the league is Long not a special victims unit and keep it up also NCIS I believe yeah we'll get to that maybe someday that's also a show that I love and could do some reviewing and another hashtag fun fan fact Jimon Hunsu James Spader and Kurt Russell would all end up playing villains in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Hunsu played Karath in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie from 2014 where James Spader voice acts the role of Ultron in Avengers Age of Ultron the movie from 2015 and Russell played Ego in Guardians of the Galaxy volume 2 a movie that aired in 2017 
Next, we also see the pharaonic mask collapse and disappear into his head. Okay. Which reveals the man has glowing eye. And the man beneath the mask is the boy from 8000 BC. O'Neill disarms the guard and shots are fired all around. Daniel tries to get them to stop firing and get shot in the process. Once O'Neill aims the weapon at the man on the throne, the children rush to stand before the man, making O'Neill pause. Outside the temple, the boys are combing through the team's possessions when they see small aircrafts, exit the pyramid ship, and head towards the village. We see the boy running up to the village after it's been shot up. He approaches Shaori. Suddenly, their speech is now translated, and he's seen asking her what had happened. While she's caring for an injured girl, she responds that Ra has punished them. I believe this is the first time that we learn that his name is Skara. Skara asks why Ra would punish them. Shaori asks what happened to Daniel, but Skara looks down with a sad expression. We see Shaori begin to cry. Next, we see Skara approaching the chief, who cheerfully tells him that they never should have helped the strangers. Incidentally, this is also where we learn that Skara is the chief's son. Next, we switch back to the pyramid ship. We see Daniel exit the sarcophagus, where we earlier saw the man, dubbing himself the sun god Ra, emerge from. Daniel has seemingly been healed from his earlier sustained injuries. This is the chamber where the pharaoh exits a bath and is getting dressed with the help of his child servants. Daniel slowly enters the chamber and follows Ra. He asks if he died. Ra, again with the distorted voice, answers, that is why he chose their way, easy to heal and repair. Ra continues speaking while Jackson slowly steps further into the chamber, while the children continue to help dress their pharaoh. Daniel passes by the bomb while Ra tells him the human race has made great strides in harnessing the atom. Clearly, the bomb was an atomic bomb. Because we never do anything small, let's always go big or go home. Oy. Daniel asks what he's going to do. He is saying he's going to send the bomb back to Earth, enhanced with their mineral, which will amplify the power of the explosion a hundredfold. He approaches Daniel by adding that he's going to prove he is the people's god by making Daniel kill his team. Daniel asks what will happen if he refuses. Standing in front of Daniel, his anger gets the better of him, and with the eyes again glowing, he rips the necklace of Eye of Ra from his neck. Ra answers that were Daniel to refuse, he will kill him and anyone who has laid eyes on him. As motivation goes, that's a good one. Quite compelling. Next, we find Shaori back in the tunnel, calling the boys over to tell them what Daniel explained to her was depicted on the walls. The next morning, we see the villagers gathered in front of the gangway, leading up to the temple, and the team is placed on the gangway, looking up to where Ra is seated. Daniel appears from behind the throne and is handed a weapon by one of the guards who directs Daniel to shoot his teammates. Slowly, Daniel walks down the red carpet, holding the staff. Yes, there is a red carpet on the gangway. How fancy! Apparently, that's universal. While Jackson is descending the gangway, Skada uses the lighter he was gifted by O'Neill to direct the sun into Daniel's eyes. This draws his attention and suddenly the boy shows him that they are hiding the team's weapons underneath their robes and cloaks. As Daniel takes aim at O'Neill's chest, last minute he swivels around and fires at the throne. In the resulting chaos, the team is whisked away by the villagers and hidden by throwing cloaks and robes over them, blending in into the crowd. In the dark and through another sandstorm, they retreat back to a cave nearby. Kowalski seems pleased the boys have armed themselves and sees them as assets. O'Neill, on the other hand, rips the guns away and yells at Kowalski that they should go home because there is nothing they can do. Daniel challenges O'Neill to tell Kowalski everything, to tell them about the bomb. O'Neill reveals his orders were to track down signs of any possible danger and if he found any, Use the bomb to blow the gate. Daniel reveals what Ra has planned. O'Neill says he will intercept the bomb before that happens. Kowalski asks why he wasn't made aware of these orders. O'Neill was stay behind to blow the gate. That was his mission from the get-go. Daniel explains that this gate isn't the threat. The gate on Earth is. Snidely, O'Neill points out that they can't do anything about that, seeing as how Daniel can't seem to figure out how to send them back. 
Okay. Should we assume that the Air Force makes it a habit of sending men who have lost everything and are struck by immense grief to lead such an important mission that to them will be a suicide mission? Sounds like a solid bit of thinking, huh? Back in the pyramid, we see Ra admonishing his guards for losing the team. I believe this is the only time in the entire movie we hear Jimin having a line. Later, Daniel approaches O'Neill when he's sitting by himself, asking him how he could have been willing to go on a mission he knew would end in his death. O'Neill answers that no one should ever outlive their child. This now at least rationalizes for him why he was so willing to go on this mission knowing that it would result in his death and confirm that he, yes, indeed was suicidal, which then again claps back to my earlier question. Why on earth would you send someone not only on this mission, but send someone to lead this mission. It just, it, it, a lot to be said about this. Back in the pyramid, we see Ra grab a device and use it to punish and then kill one of his guards. First by flinging him across the room with it, and then frying his brain, and he grabs hold of the guard's head. While Daniel is preparing food, the boys are laughing. He asks them what makes them laugh, and one of the boys responds by saying that what he is doing isn't considered something a husband does. As this happens, Shaori enters the room and freezes. Daniel is shocked he's considered a husband by the tribe, and sees the flustered Shaori passing by. He follows her and asks her if they are considered married. She asks him not to be angry that that she hasn't told him that he didn't want her. He responds by gently grabbing her face and kissing her, while they again make it clear she's inexperienced, albeit willing, I guess. But how willing can a woman truly be in situations such as these? Again, the ease with which themes such as human trafficking, sex trafficking of women is just casually thrown into a movie because that is the patriarchal expectation put on women. Using women as trade and using women to solidify relationships between men and then the shaming that results in a woman having either not been being deemed quality or pretty enough or good enough just blah, yeah no mm, so much to be said and i already said quite a bit so i'm gonna leave it at that but yeah it's i know it's meant to be an endearing scene trying to show that they genuinely have feelings for each other that they genuinely love each other but take a step back and look what all of this perpetuates and basically the responsibility and shame we place on a woman one-dimensionally treating her as an object debatably even less than an animal with own wants and feelings and desires and qualities just um this is an item of course that's going to be mentioned quite a bit in this tv show and i think they tackle it beautifully later on but yeah i know it's supposed to be a love story and genuinely they care for each other and it's it is a beautiful love story it's one of the love stories that i loved about this universe but just underlying the message and the narrative just <laughs> In the morning, Daniel discovers Skara drawing the pyramid with the three moons above it. Daniel connects the moons in the drawing and realizes this is the seventh symbol he's looking for. He happily tells Kowalski they're going home. Next, we see the guards threatening the people working at the mine. It appears to be a trap when one of the workers turns out to be O'Neill and he shoots the guard. Khasuf sees this and is clearly displeased. Skara tells his father he no longer wants to be a slave, while Khasuf falls to his knees taking the people around him with him. Daniel asks him to behold. As he lowers the hawk mask of the guard by pressing the button, he saw them use earlier to lower the mask. Once Khasuf sees that beneath the mask the guard is just a man, and O'Neill has now shown them that they can be killed, it seems to change his mind as well. Viva la révolution! Next, we see a small convoy of workers pull a cart into the temple flanked by guards. Turns out amongst them are O'Neill, Jackson, and Shodi. Once exposed, they open fire on the guards. Unfortunately, some get hurt in the process. Outside, the rest of the convoy runs up the gangway to give support, but a door is lowered, locking the temple and stranding the convoy right outside the temple door. Again, airships are dispatched, firing on the people stranded outside. Jackson, O'Neill, and Shodi reach the room holding the stargate. While they discuss, Shodi gets hit by a staff blast. We see Daniel placing Shodi in the sarcophagus that previously also saved his life when he was gravely wounded by a staff. O'Neill fights the garden stargate room where the bomb is seen now counting down. 
Inside the pyramid, Ra is shown with a sun disc between a set of horns while he watches the uprising outside surrendering to the guards. Naughty, naughty. The sun disc with horns is a symbolism for Hathor, not Ra. Anywho, after the sarcophagus heals Shaori, Daniel tries to take her back to the temple but is intercepted by Ra. Ra then tries to kill Daniel with the hand device that he previously used to kill the guard. Meanwhile, the fight between O'Neill and the guard is decided when O'Neill beams his head up via the rings, thus instantly killing the man. Luckily, at the same time, because this is a movie, Daniel and Shodi are also in the rings on the side of the pyramid, so it's an exact exchange as can only truly happen in movies. O'Neill sends the guard with a farewell, give my regards to King Tut asshole. Nice reference. Periodically completely inaccurate, but hey, God, Pharaoh, but okay, funny nonetheless. Khasuf leads his villagers into rebellion and storming the guards that are keeping his team and the boys as prisoners. While they rejoice in liberating the prisoners, they see that the pyramid ship is about to take off. O'Neill can seem to disarm the bomb. This also tends to happen in movies when people are in sync, aligned, working together, exemplifying great teamwork, look at each other, and seem to come to the exact same conclusion at the exact same time. Both Daniel and O'Neill figure out a solution, sending the bomb aboard Ra's ship that by now has entered orbit. Looking seriously peeved, we see the alien shown earlier that supposedly is possessing the boy shine through as he is subsequently blown to bits. On the planet, they witness a great fireball in the sky and again rejoice in their victory. Stata sees O'Neill, Daniel, and Shauri exit the temple and he salutes O'Neill. His friends and the members of the team all stand up and also salute the colonel. Looking to his left, he sees that Daniel's a bit distracted because he's kissing Shauri. Because, yes, in the end, this is still a romantic movie, supposedly. Fast forward and we now see that the Stargate has again connected and the people say their goodbyes. We see O'Neill having a moment with Skara and the men all thank Daniel, who appears to have decided to remain behind on the planet. O'Neill is set to return as well and Jackson asks him if he's gonna be alright. With a surprised laugh, he says he thinks he will. Daniel then gives O'Neill the necklace with the eye of Ra. Hmm. Still Horus! To return to Catherine with the message, it brought him luck. I'll say, the dude got married and presumably indeed lucky. They step to the gate and ta-da-da, the end. And for those fans of the franchise, some additional fun fan facts. Though the planet visited through the Stargate is never referred to by name, throughout the entirety of the movie, the spin-off television series Stargate SG-1 that aired a few years later would reveal that the planet's name is Abydos, again a reference to the ancient Egyptian society and culture. While it says in the movie that the planet is located in the Kalium galaxy in the television series, its location is retroactively changed to be within the Milky Way, because travel to another galaxy will necessitate a combination of eight instead of seven glyphs as utilized in the movie. Though Ra's former host Trace was never identified by name throughout the movie, the television series Target S1 would later identify the entity of Ra as a Goa'ul. Ra's glowing eye effect was apparently added in post-production because test audiences didn't think that he felt alien enough. This trait was continued in the Target SG-1 television series as an identifier to people who are taken over by a Goa'ul. I did not know this, but Hasbro apparently released action figures of the film such as Daniel Jackson, Anubis, Jack O'Neill, Ra, Anubis, the chief guard. Like, for real? Awesome! You got your own action figure! <laughs> Also something not answered in this movie is how they operate the gate. Because we use a shit ton of computers to dial the gate. How is never actually explained or shown in the movie. But in the television series, of course, they had to figure out a way to make it plausible. They came up with a console for activating the Stargate dubbed the Dial Home Device, or as they lovingly start calling it, the DHD. It's actually kind of weird because there isn't one on Avidos either. Like, our gate was buried, but theirs wasn't. So one might infer that the Stargate was activated by hand or some sort of portal device. There's 
also the matter of the substantial power requirement, which on Earth had to have been supplied externally. Subsequent canon from the television series makes clear that the original power source for Stargate is within the DHD, which we don't really see in the movie on Abydos either, so... Okay, but I'm very glad they, in the first episode already, explained it in Stargate SG-1. Any plot also resulting from that to make it make sense were resolved. That's some fun facts about the actors. Kurt Russell, who plays Colonel Jack O'Neill, was first sent the script and he thought it was terrible and thus turned it down. Producers made increasingly generous offers until he finally accepted. Dean Devlin later learned that Russell had somehow been sent the first draft of the script, which Devlin himself admitted was terrible, rather than the final draft of the script. Whoopsie-daisy. Well, you're very lucky and good on you, because apparently they really, really wanted you and they just offered and offered and offered, even though they themselves made a mistake and you got a very sweet deal out of it, I presume. I hope. Then, for the character Dr. Daniel Jackson, Rick Moranis, the man known from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, was offered to play the role of Dr. Daniel Jackson, but turned it down to work on Little Giants and the Flintstones, both movies that came out in 1994. James Spader, who eventually did end up playing Dr. Daniel Jackson, at least in the movie, that he did the film for the money, as he found the script to be awful. He said, acting for me is a passion, but it is also a job, and I've always appreciated it as such. I have a certain manual laborer's view of acting. There's no shame in taking a film because you need some fucking money. I gotta wonder, like, the quote in the movie where he says, I'm never gonna get paid, is made in reference of him taking the movie for money? I don't know. Like, I'm sorry that you apparently didn't find a connection to the movie. I hope you eventually did, at least a little. But, you know, man's got to pay his bills, so, eh. So later in a magazine interview, James Spader said that he found the original screenplay awful, but also that it was so bad it actually intrigued him, to each their own, I guess. He then met with Roland Emmerich and was inspired by the director's passion for the project, decided to make the movie because he felt the energy and craziness of of making such a film would translate into an exciting final film. Well, he wasn't wrong, and he found a way to make it appeal to him even though maybe it didn't really actually intrigue him all that much. And the man who played Ra, Jay Davidson, his dislike of the attention that he received after the crying game in movie in 1992 made him reluctant to take the role of Ra in Stargate in the first place. He didn't want to just turn the offer down, so he made what he expected to be an unacceptable demand of a million dollars. Just goes to show, never refuse, just go crazy high, outrageous in your demands, and if they then still accept, win-win, alright? Because his offer was accepted and he appeared in the movie. According to the DVD commentary, the group of scantily clad youths surrounding Ra were intentionally included to create an unease in the audience. Good, because it worked. At least I was uncomfortable. Wardrobe and cinematography had to work around Jay Davidson's nipple rings that he refused to remove. <laughs> okay, that's a little fun fact on the side. Jay Davidson despised the costumes he wore so much. On the last day of shooting his scenes, apparently after hearing the final cut, he stripped naked on the set without going to his trailer. Jay Davidson thought his performance was terrible and didn't know that his voice would be altered, which was an afterthought during post-production apparently, or that he would otherwise be made to appear any more alien. After the first screening of the film, Dean Devlin found Davidson in tears. When Devlin attempted to apologize, Davidson responded, No, you saved me! and thanked him. Aww. Moreover, Davidson retired from acting after completion of this movie. Since 1994, he has only appeared in The Borgild Project, a 17-minute film from 2009. Then some additional cast fun facts. This movie is French Stewart's The Man Who Played Lieutenant Freddy and That Played Harry on Third Rock from the Sun. This was his film debut. In Stargate the movie, he played an Earthman who travels to an alien planet, and in Third Rock from the Sun, he plays an alien who travels to Earth. He also is the only actor to appear in both Stargate the movie and Stargate Universe. He played Dr. Andrew Cavill in Stargate Universe episode called Alliances.
Moreover, 12 characters or variations thereof appear in subsequent Stargate productions. We have Colonel Jack O'Neill, Dr. Daniel Jackson, Kowalski, Ferretti, Hasuf, Skara, Shauri, Ra, Anubis, Catherine Langford, Professor Langford, and Sarah O'Neill, Colonel Jack O'Neill's wife. Alexis Cruz, who plays Skara and Eric Avari starring as Hasuf, returned for the TV show Stargate SG-1 in 1997. However, in television series, Shauri's name is changed into Share, and O'Neill's name is changed from being written with one L to two L's. For the more Lieutenant Kowalski returns as a recurring character on the television series. In the movie, he's played by John Deal. In the show, he's played by the actor Jay Akavone. According to Alexis Cruz, he only realized he'd gotten the part of Skara when Dean Devlin began enthusiastically showing him action figure prototypes of his character and the others. <laughs> Ooh, that's quite the realization and awesome. BT Devs, you're now an action figure. Vatiare Eugenie Hirschon, also known as Vatiare Bandera, auditioned for the role of Shauri, the movie, but lost it to Millie Avital, who eventually plays Shauri in the movie. Vatiare would later play the character, now renamed Share, to Stargate SG-1. I guess she just was meant to be, and I have more on that, but I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah, it really, really was meant to be. Well, alrighty then. After listening to this podcast episode of my first movie review, things you may have learned about its content creator, Layla. She loves any and all things related to ancient Egypt and even has tattoos so far, one directly taken from this franchise. She likes to do things in order, can go 100 miles a minute, and tends to go all over the place, bit of an overthinker, and yet is all somehow relates to the current topic and can possibly be even educational to some. I hope if there are questions, nuances, corrections, or anything resulting from listening to these rambles, please do share and educate is all. That's what this podcast is all about. Sharing, caring, learning from each other's stories. As a true neurodivergent and INFG, strive to always be right, but I know I'm not. So thus, I'm open to differing views and, again, I dare you to change my mind. And if you can convince me with your arguments or show me proof, I will easily concede my previous point. And if it was a really, really big-ass oopsie, I will even print a retraction. Hey, I embrace learning, so if I make a mistake or if something is inaccurate, please do tell me. I would much rather be educated than hold firm to, no, I'm right. I don't really have that ego problem. I'm not saying I don't have ego problems, because I think we all do to some extent. I would much rather be accurate than right, if you know what. As you may have noticed, content creator Layla is also a bit of a research nerd. What can I say? I love knowledge. Knowledge is power. And not as in power I want to control and dominate, but power as in when you come from knowledge and truth and accurate information, you can perpetuate that into the world and grow and create more knowledgeable positive things than perpetuating wrong narrative. And we've all seen what fake news does to people. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that we have not in any way, shape or form reached the end of that train derailment. Hmm. Anyway, also, Layla goes on regular time as you can again notice. She likes to call them brain fart train derailments that may or may not interest the listener. She signals their start, I hope, and finish, I try, so they're easy to skip if one so wishes. This way the listener can just enjoy one's review of set topic or get to know the creator in the process by listening to Let's Call It the Director's Cut, wherein she tells you a bit about herself, her thoughts, and how this may have impacted the current review process. In doing so, she's opening the door to get some sharing and caring going, where open-minded individuals are invited to share their thoughts, stories, and feelings about the topics discussed. She's also open for comments and input on any and all topics discussed as long as they are shared with respect. That is the one condition. Stay respectful, people. And hopefully many more episodes are to follow. To be continued!